0: This podcast is brought to you by A.J. Bell and Shares magazine. Shares magazine is published by A.J. Bell Media, part of A.J. Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money & Markets. I'm Laura from A.J. Bell and with me is Dan from Shares. Hi. So this week we're going to talk about how to save money for your children why you should pay attention to directors dealing in their own shares, and the latest fund manager departure. So we're joined by Lisa Webster from AJ Bell this week, who is one of the technical gurus at the company.
1: Hello. So recently, we had the news that a big name fund manager, Alexander Darwall from Jupiter, is going to leave the company and set up his own firm. So Laura, what does this mean for investors?
0: So it was announced um, earlier this year that um, Alexander Darwell, this um, well-known fund manager, was stepping down on a couple of the funds at Jupiter, but he was gonna carry on running um, the Jupiter European Opportunities Investment Trust, which is a pretty popular trust, and he was gonna to continue to have a role at the company um, kind of overseeing departments and divisions. But now um, we're a few months down the line from that, and it's actually transpired that he's leaving the company, he's setting up his own firm. Um, this might have echoes of Woodford, who did did a very similar thing. Prominent fund manager, ran a lot of money, decided to strike out on their own. Um, so the the board of the trust is weighing up whether it will move with him or, or stick with a different manager, as um, investment trusts can do. But I thought it would be interesting to look at other fund managers that have done similar things. So they've left a big fund house and set up on their own. Um,
1: exactly. So it is quite common, isn't it? You know, if you get your, such a celebrity status you feel the confidence to go on your own?
0: I totally thought it was and then I went through all the, the the like, looking at which fund managers have actually done it and there's not that many in recent years who have truly set up their own shop rather than going from a massive asset manager to a boutique firm. So Richard Buxton was a prominent example where he moved to old mutual global investors, and then there was a kind of management buyout of that, and he's now at his own firm, but that was kind of through a slightly securitous route, so I excluded him. So we have Neil Woodford is obviously the most famous example. Um, Richard Pease, so he used to work at Henderson, and then he took his fund and set up Crux Asset Management. Um, Nick Train is another example, so he's been at Linzall Train, which he set up with Michael Linzel, um for a number of years, but before that he was at M&G, running lots of money there. Um, someone called Barry Norris who lots of people might not have heard of but um, he set up Argonaut and was running a couple of funds there and then there was a trio of people that came out of Schroder's who set up a uh, asset manager called Sanderton. that's still quite small so some people um, Julie Dean is probably the most well-known name out of that okay. she ran yeah. lots of money at Schroeder's. so do you want to know what happens to managers when they leave so big fund groups is it because
1: they've got total freedom to make all decisions and they make investors even more money than they did before or is it not quite that? That straightforward? is what
0: you would wish but no. Yeah. So we looked at, um, I might not bore you with the techie details of this but you can have a look at how we actually look, work this out on um, the shares website but we looked at their average alpha generation so their performance above the benchmark um, at their old firm when they were in these big asset management companies and then looked at that after they moved and set up their own shop and on average they produce less alpha after they've set up on their own than when they were at a big fund house.
1: Oh, is that, do you think that's because they've got not as many people behind them? If they, you know, setting up your own business if they've got a small sport team uh, or, or is it not, is it hard to sort of put a, an actual reason why they may not have done as much?
0: Um, It's hard to know exactly and for each manager it will be slightly different but that's not going to stop me hypothesising. So, (laughs) yeah, a lot of it is you move from these massive groups where you have really big research departments, you have lots of analysts that work on your fund, you have a whole sales and marketing side that deal with the selling and marketing of your fund and when you set up on your own you have to get involved in in more parts of that even if you've got a kind of business head who runs the business side of things. As a fund manager you're still going to have to do a bit more of that. Um, So that can be one distraction away from purely just running money. Um, One of the other reasons could be that, so when these big managers leave firms, you need to assess whether they're the type of person that would benefit from some of the controls and some of the red tape that a big company would put around them, or whether they be better in a kind of freer environment where they can make their own decisions and decide their own way to, to tread. And so that might be an element in some of these. There's a, another big factor in this, which is if you're a fund manager and you've had a massive losing streak and your style of investing has been out of favour for ages, you're not going to decide to set up on your own. You're not going to think this is the time when investors are really going to follow me. So what you tend to see is these managers will have had a really long period of outperforming. They'll think, I am awesome. I could totally set up on my own. <laughs> I'm fairly sure that's what they all think. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, they'll leave and they'll know that they'll get decent number of investors to follow them. But at some point, that kind of their style of investing being in favour has got to end because markets go up and down, different styles are in favour at different times. So What's probably more likely with some of these is that they had a a value style tilt, um, which is where they're kind of looking for unloved companies. That was in favour. They had really strong performance. And then after they set up on their own, that kind of the tide turned a bit. That wasn't so in favour and they haven't seen such good performance since then.
1: I'm glad that you've assumed the role of the negative person on the podcast. Rather than accusing me to be that person. I'm
0: giving you a week off. You can be all sunny and cheery. (laughs) Um, So on Shares, you regularly cover what directors or companies are buying and selling shares in their own business. Um, so why do you cover that? What, can well, it give in- investors any insight? Yeah, it, it,
1: it can, because I, th- I think those investors like to look at things like economic data or, you know, your construction data, retail sales. They're looking for signals, uh, in, in, you know, bits of information that could potentially give them an edge about some of the stocks that might be in their portfolio. Um, Director dealings is one which I think is perhaps not as widely used as it could be Um, but it's also obviously not always as clear-cut as some of those other bits of data points which I've just mentioned. I think that if you're a director I think you you must know the company better than anyone else so if if you're buying shares in a company um, you're buying shares in your employer sure there is an argument to suggest um, they must be confident about the business because let's face it they're in all they're in the strategy meetings they know what's going on with the day-to-day business they know what's coming up whether the market conditions are good or bad so there is a, there's a sense that if, if, a, if a director buys is that um, a signal for a positive signal for investors and and the flip side is if they sell you know what do they know that we don't know but it's never that clear cut but i think it is definitely worth monitoring as one of the many things that you should do when you're researching companies
0: so what are you looking for particularly Are you looking for massive sales or massive purchases or are you looking more at the who the individual is who's doing the buying and selling
1: it's definitely who, who the individual so i personally I, I think if you're looking for finance director and the chief exec because they you know, they really are truly they know what's going on a non-exec director um perhaps wouldn't know as much as the day-to-day business, but they will certainly you know what the bigger, bigger plans and stuff. But I think what you want to do is, is to look at um, it, you just look at them on a case-by-case basis. So if you've got a, a chief exec is selling some shares, what's the percentage of his overall? Holding is he selling if it's small then perhaps that's not really a a signal but um if it's say a chief exec a, a finance director and a chairman and they're all buying together i mean it's called a pack trade i mean lots of people think that that really is a strong signal but we had we had something the other day which i thought was quite an interesting example um it's a flooring company called area it's tiny i don't think any of our listeners will uh, have come across it but they issued a profit warning and said things weren't going very well but two months before this happened the chief exec sold his entire holding in the business 1.8 million pounds he sold it to a newly created employee benefit trust um and At the time, I thought it caught my eye because there were some people on Twitter talking about it saying, This is a bit strange. Surely, if an employee benefit trust wanted to. buy some shares so it can start rewarding the staff in the business. They could just do a tender offer amongst all shareholders. Why is only one person being given that privilege to exit? Because areas are very illiquid stock. So if you have someone selling or buying selling a large amount of it, they can really affect the share price. Um, so So that was in April. And then in June, this profit warning. So the profit warning was saying, you know, the second quarter of the year has been difficult. So you could argue that, Uh, April they may not have known about the problems that may have arisen in in May and June but there's lots of of people sort of saying this is a bit iffy so I think there is it's worth bearing in mind that there are some rules that prevent directors from dealing shares at certain times Um, so there is arguably some sort of protection for for shareholders so they can't deal in a closed period, which is when financial accounts are being prepared, they cannot buy and sell. If there's undisclosed information, such as a possible takeover or a big contract win or loss, so if a director knew that trading wasn't going very well, they wouldn't be allowed to deal. So you you, you could turn around and say, "Well, this area example is you know, it's followed the, those rules." I don't know. I haven't spoken to the company, so um, but I think it's 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 an interesting thing where. There, is, there are some sort of particular times when you can do these things. So, But otherwise, if someone is transacting, um, it's definitely worth looking to see what they do.
0: And I guess also looking at a kind of repeat pattern. So if someone has been, con- even if they're not selling a large chunk, if they've been continually selling every couple of months over the past year or something, that might be a bit of a red flag as well. I think
1: so, yeah. I mean, continue. there's, there's the guy who runs, uh, Rico Back, chief executive of Royal Mail. He's been buying... On many occasions since last summer, um, and obviously the, the, the Royal Mail share price, if you follow it, has had a terrible time. And he's obviously seeing great. Well, he he obviously is confident about the future. But you could argue, well, he's the boss. He's got to be, isn't he? Otherwise, you, know, you don't want to have a a, a boss running a company that size with no confidence. But um, occasionally you get FTSE 100 directors where they they have to buy shares. It's in their contract. So we had one fairly recently. The new boss of BT, um, made a statement saying in the next 30 days they're going to be buying £2 million worth of shares. I mean, that's quite a lot, isn't it? That is a
0: lot. I I mean, it just depends how much he's been paid. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: But I just had a look. Some of the biggest deals I've seen this year are um, the boss of Trainline sold £16 million worth of shares when the company floated on the stock market a few weeks ago. So this is an example of private company being flowed to the stock market it's its a, a way of providing an exit for existing shareholders so you, uh, to me that's fine um, share, uh, directors can choose to buy or sell at IPOs because um, it's a natural liquidity event but then you had the ASOS co-founder Nick Robertson uh, earlier this year sold 15 million pounds worth of shares wow that's um, right. so just, just one sort of final point to consider is that when, when you're looking at this information about directors dealings don't simply blindly follow. Don't just copy what they're doing. You must try and understand what's actually going
0: on. Because people could have personal reasons for selling, right? They could be buying a new house and so they need to sell a big chunk of their investment or whatever. Exactly. So
1: the bad thing is that on the stock market, they have to report it to the stock market. It's an official announcement, this is what they're doing. Barely any of them give a reason apart from it might be that they've they've exercised some options and they've sold shares to pay the tax bill, which is fine. You know that's that's perfectly acceptable. Um, I know for my role as a journalist, when I call up companies and ask a question, they say, well. you you can't report it but actually what's happened is this person's getting divorced or or they're buying a new house and stuff so quite a lot of the time is it's a fair reason why they're doing it um and perhaps actually for transparency reasons they should they should say these things um and it would help to give the correct message to the market um but i don't yeah don't follow these exactly what they're doing you must do your own research on it but i do think that they are signals that are worth keeping an eye on
0: So, Lisa, we're now in school holiday season, so lots of parents are wondering how they're going to juggle childcare and and pay for it over the summer months. But um, you've got some tips for busy parents who might have some spare cash at other times of the year that they want to put away for the longer term for their kids. So what should they be doing, putting it in a
2: pink piggy bank for the kids? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's one option, I suppose. Uh, but if you want to get, get a bit more back uh, for your money, uh, there's three sort of main ways that you can invest for children if you want to, if you want to invest in, the, in stocks and shares and get into the markets. Um, so their junior SIP, uh, junior ISA and bear trust stealing account. Um, the first one that most people will probably look at would be a junior ISA. Um, so like the adult version of an ISA, uh, it's a tax, tax advantage wrapper, so you uh, don't pay any income tax or capital gains tax on any investments held within the junior ISA. Um, it's open to any child uh, who's a UK resident under the age of 18. Uh, and their parent or legal guardian can open that for them. We do uh, get quite a lot of inquiries about grandparents and things, grandparents wanting to invest for their grandchildren, uh, a bit of spare cash. Um, They're absolutely fine to invest in a junior ISA, but the condition is it has to be the parent that sets it up in the first place. And when it terms of sort of making the investment decisions and managing it, it can, under HMRC rules, it can only be the parent that does that, even if it's the grandparents who are actually funding the account. So grandparents can put money in, but parents yeah. have to decide where it's invested and have yeah. to open it in the yeah, first place. Yeah, that's it, spot on. I mean, parents can pay in as well. That's absolutely fine. You can, anybody can pay into, you know, into a junior ISA for the benefit of a child. Um, all the subscriptions that are paid into it are treated as gifts to that child. Um Important thing to know is once you put your money in, you can't get it out again. Um, the money so you can't raid it if it comes to summer holidays and you really need to pay for that
0: childcare or yes, precisely. <laughs>
2: um, the money is locked away until the child
0: turns eighteen. Um- and then this is one of the big criticisms that people, some people, have of a junior ISA is that age eighteen that money becomes the kids and they can, you would
2: hope they would not splurge it, but they can splurge it. Yes, yeah, you're spot on. Uh, Basically, as soon as the child hits their 18th birthday, it converts to an adult ISA. Obviously, in the child's name, and they have access to it, so they can do what they like with it. Now, uh, as a parent myself, you know we all hope we uh, raise responsible children, um, and that when they turn eighteen, you know they're not going to blow it, and they might use it on something a bit more worthwhile, like you know going to university or you know towards a first house or something. Uh, but you don't know what the outcome's going to be. Do you? you can't guarantee that, so it is something to bear in mind. Um, you know how much you want to put into it you know because there is no control once they hit the 18th birthday it is the child's money um so
1: how much can you what what's the current uh, amount, max amount you could put into a junior
2: ISA? Yeah, so for the nineteen twenty this tax year it's £4,368 is the annual subscription limit it does go up every year in line with CPI increases um, so it goes up each year um, they always make it divisible by 12 for those that want to make monthly, regular monthly payments um, it goes in um, I mean it can um, uh, put some projections on this, you know if you, if you set one up uh, for a child that's born today and you pay in the maximum every year and made a couple of assumptions about you know CPI going up so the subscription limit going up 2% a year and if you make an assumption of 5% growth uh, by the time the child turns 18 you'd have a fund of just over £150,000 I'd have liked that at 18 Yeah. I can't
0: guarantee yeah. I wouldn't have splurged it though <laughs> imagine what sort of gap year you could have with that so. gap year
2: yeah, <laughs> a very good one. You <laughs> could have had a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so it, it is quite a substantial fund. So, but obviously, you know, it's it's a good tax-efficient vehicle. You know, you don't have to put the maximum. In, obviously, putting in, you know, what what you can afford. Um, you know, just using it for gifts. I mean, I have Junior Isa's for my children. We don't put an awful lot into it, but we use it for for gifts from grandparents and things like that, birthdays and Christmas. If they want to put a bit more in for a nest egg, you know, if it's you know it's quite useful for, for things like that.
0: What's the benefit of using that rather than just the parent putting the mo- that money in their own ISA because then they've got more flexibility of being able to access it if they want to or if the kid wants to spend their money on something and also you don't have that issue around age 18?
2: Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, there is the fact, I suppose it removes the temptation to blow it or use it for other purposes by the fact, you know, it is going to be for the child and they can't touch the 18, so if you want to have it as a university fund, as an example, um, There's sort of no danger of it being used for something else in the meantime. Um, Obviously, for those people that use their 20,000 allowance uh, for their own ices, it's an additional allowance as well. So, you know, the child gets their own allowance on top of it. Um, So there is... know more they can do if you want to keep it separate because you have a different investment strategy you know if you're starting off you know for a child that's very young uh you know we do see applications come in from very organized people that do it you know the child's you know two or three days old or something they're setting up yeah it does happen um you know you know and you know it's going to be locked up for 18 years whereas if you have you know other funds which you're using on a more of you know for other things on a shorter term basis you know keeping your different investment strategies and things so um you know there's, there's lots of reasons um why you would do it and just like a ring fencing that you know that it's money is for you know one for each child you have or or, or whatever to keep it sort of quite distinct rather than sort of like a one merged pot on it
1: so we, you mentioned earlier about the junior sit which is that sort of self-invested personal pension mm-hmm.
2: now we you know, if
1: you if you sort of follow the world of personal finance, you know, th- these SIPs are quite common, but junior SIPs don't mm. tend to be mentioned too much. Is that, is that should we read something into it that, that actually they're not popular because there's better ways of saving for your child? Or?
2: I think the junior SIP is definitely one for the long game. Um, at the end of the day, it's a pension, so it means that you're not going to have access to it. I mean, under current rules, you can't access your pension till you're age fifty five, obviously as longevity and rules change you know state pensions going up we know that access to personal pensions is likely to go up as well that's already we've been told that's going to happen it's not been written in legislation or anything yet though um so you know a child born today you know you start putting money into a junior SIP, um age thinking they can access at age 55 it might be age 60 by the time they get there so that's obviously quite a long-term plan to be putting that into, see for your child's retirement um and i think it's one that you know most people would probably use other vehicles first use their allowances elsewhere, such as you know, a junior ice lock up till they're eighteen, um, possibly in a dealing account, which I'll come on to in a minute. Um but, you know, if your allowances have been used up elsewhere, it's still there's a tax efficient way of getting money into the junior SIP. And because you get tax relief on the contributions going in, there is a bit of a bonus element with a junior SIP, which you don't get, you know, with a junior ISA or with other vehicles. Uh, because even for children that have no earnings, um, again, if they're UK residents, uh, you could put the money in. Um, you put in 2,000, the maximum is 2,880 pounds that you, that a parent would give to the child, usually, or could be a grandparent, it could come from again. Um, but the government will top that up, Um, it's just £3,600. So you get that £720 a year. Effectively, every, you know, this is the maximum that you could have that going in extra. And obviously the benefits of compounding within, again, tax-free environment, no income tax, CGT, whilst it's in that SIP wrapper. So there is that bonus element to it.
0: I wonder how a kid would feel if they got to, like, age 18 and found out that they got... A uh, a junior sip that had a decent amount of money in it, but they couldn't access it until later in life. Mm-hmm. It's like a bit of a happy sad, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think a lot of people like to give money to children, but actually mm-hmm. want to see them benefit from it. Mm-hmm. I guess is that another thing to think about with with pensions that um, you, know, you may not, particularly for a grandparent, may mm-hmm. not be um, you know live long enough to see the child, you know, the grandchild mm-hmm. enjoy the sort of the fruits of their labour. So.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the other. Well, it's a slightly different angle, really, though, but with a junior SIP, particularly uh, from, from a grandparents' point of view, where we are seeing sort of the, the biggest increase, if you like, for junior SIPs is really where the grandparents, with their own pension funds, is when they're making their nominations, their expression of wishes, who they want to inherit their funds when they die, their pension funds, is if they could put... Um, grandchildren including the nominations it doesn't have to be the whole fund, it can be just be a small portion of it, you know, you can have any number of beneficiaries, they, if they leave an element of that to a grandchild um, the benefit of having it they, they can keep it within a junior SIP, which the parent would manage until they reached age 18, actually as a beneficiary, you can take the money out at any age so they can pass on funds any like remaining pension funds, pass that on to a child under the age of 18 or whatever, you know, a grandchild in a pension month. So um, they could see it, okay, it wouldn't be within their lifetime, but it wouldn't be, that it would be locked up till that child reached age 55 or 60. They would have the knowledge that, you know, it could be used. And as a beneficiary, so they can take it out at any age. So the parents who are managing it could use it for things like paying school fees or, you know, as long as it's for the child's benefit, then they could actually access it.
0: And I guess we'll see that a bit more now because we've got that um, problem that we've talked about before i don't know if it's actually a problem that might be misphrasing it but where um people are living longer and so then at the point that they come to inherit money from their parents they're actually old enough to have a decent pot to themselves they've already bought their house they've mm-hmm. built up pension savings and so we've seen quite a lot of that skipping of generations yeah yeah. yeah and from a and tax wealth.
2: point of view as well i mean the, the death benefit rules and pensions changed a couple of years ago they're very much more generous now than they used to be in terms of the beneficiaries but if a, a grandparent if it's, it's, if the pension member dies over the age of 75, when the beneficiary takes income from the pension, from that fund, the beneficiary's fund, they pay tax at their marginal rates, tax as income tax. Um, now, if the grandparent dies at the age of 80, their child might be, you know, age 50, might be a high rate taxpayer. Any money that they take out, they're gonna be paying higher rate tax on it. Whereas if they leave it to they have a, a grandchild, um, you know, or maybe even students, you know, sort of somebody who's at university, um, who doesn't have any other income, they can take it out, they pay income tax on it, but they have their personal allowance still, so they could take twelve and a half thousand pounds out a year tax free. Whereas if it's in the hands of their parents then they'd have to pay the tax on it. So I imagine Lisa has the best organised finances ever. (laughs) You know, all
0: of the tax tricks and I think we should get her to look after all of our finances (laughs) (laughs) now.
2: Um, so yeah the other account that I've not really talked much about yet is a a bear trust dealing account so this is simply a dealing account um, same as you know you might hold personally but it, it just has to be in a bear trust wrapper because a child can't legally own shares under the age of 18 so you put a bear trust sort of structure around the dealing account. Um, So you set up trustees and the difference on this one is the trustees can be anybody you want. So if the grandparents wanted to manage the money then you can have this with a bear trust which you can't have on the the junior ISA or a junior SIP option so grandparents who want to put money into an account for the child um, they can do that now it's not a tax advantage wrapper in the same way that a junior ISA or a junior SIP is um, but it's really important to remember that children do get their own allowances as well so if it's in the child's name you know they still get a personal allowance um, so that you can have income accumulating in this bear trust account of you know twelve and a half thousand pounds a year personal allowance. Uh, they get a dividend allowance, they have their capital gains tax allowance, they still have all of those and it's taxed on the beneficiary. Um, and I say it can be the grandparent, uh, whoever who um, controls that. Um, the one thing you have to be really careful with on the bear trust accounts though is that if the parents want to pay into it if the parents pay, make payments into it and there's more than a hundred pound of income in a year then it becomes taxed on the parents and you look at oh, it, okay. that yeah, so that's yeah. you know you definitely want to look out for um, and it's why it's really popular option for grandparents to do it or it can be any other family members just not i so say it's just this issue with the parents you know if the income is more than 100 pound a year then it becomes taxable on them so um, but you know that can be uh, a useful vehicle and again it's you know you have access to that at any time as long as it's for the benefit you know of the child that's the beneficiary so going back to your point down about um you know and grandparents and things wanting to you know see see the benefit for their children you know in their lifetime rather than it wait until after they've died they can have this trust fund for them they can control of the investments um assets they can make withdrawals you know in their lifetime as long as it's for the benefit of the child and again to say school fees university fees you know things like that are obvious examples um the other point on it coming back to the sort of the, the control bits, like we said, junior ISIS at 18, age 18, they just get control of it and there's nothing you can do about it. It's a little bit different with a bear trust because a bear trust can continue once the child becomes an adult and the trustees can carry on looking after the money um, indefinitely, there's no age limit on that. But the only thing is that the, uh, the beneficiary does have the legal right once they turn 18 to demand the assets. Uh, in practice that's not something that we see that often that you know if the trustees didn't want them to have it but the beneficiary would come to us and say right I don't care what they say give me all my money now Uh, but in theory it can it can happen but you know from a practical point of view you know if they want to carry on managing it then you know they can do that the trustees can carry on doing that is there anything you don't know about finance Lots. (laughs) I'm very, very impressed with your knowledge. Don't ask me about mortgages or insurance. Um. Um,
0: So thanks a lot for listening this week. As ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we will see you next week. See you. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine.